The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. It is the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it, shall we? All right, so a couple of things. First off, yes, I know for the past month or two I have been posting uh, or doing an episode about once every two weeks. And the reason for that is I've been traveling a lot. There was Abu Dhabi, there's been... Houston, Tulsa, I just got back from there last week. I'm going to be in Midland this week for Executive Oil Conference. So if you see me there, by all means, pop on by. I'll be at the Petroledger booth. Um, that being said, by the time you hear this, of course, the conference will already be over, and you'll have um, pretty much lost your opportunity to do that. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just see if I run anybody out in the wild. Anyway... Uh, so yes, now that the travel is settling down a bit, I should get back on a more routine and normal travel schedule, and so hopefully we'll make that happen. Uh, or not travel schedule, uh, recording schedule. That's what we're going to do here. So, let's get into tonight's topic. So, uh, as I sit here and record this episode, a lot is being made about President Joe Biden's planned meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the Asia-Pacific Economic Summit, which is being hosted in San Francisco. Now, I'm not going to bother covering the summit, and I'm not going to bother covering the meeting between the two world leaders, and you might be asking why. And the answer is because it it, it doesn't make any difference. With the bad blood and the amount of change, uh, the amount of change that we're going to see is effectively zero, so there's really no reason to talk about it. Uh, but... As a framing device, this is useful for our topic. Why is there so much bad blood between China and the United States? Why is there any beef at all? Now, there's the obvious answer because, well, they're communists and the U.S. historically doesn't like that. But there is a bit more nuance to it. And as usual, we're going to do a deep dive tonight into the history of exactly why there is a problem. And seeing as how uh, my show has already banned in China doesn't really seem like I'm risking all that much by going into this topic, and it might be useful for some of y'all that want to know the why behind all of this. So let's hop back in our time machine, and let's uh, let's tackle this topic. Now, I uh, have had a lot of coffee today, and when I say I've had a lot of coffee, I mean a lot. By my standards, that's quite a number. Uh, so I'm not, in fact, drinking coffee this evening. Instead, I'm drinking mint herbal tea with no caffeine because I want to go to bed in a few minutes. And, um, yeah, yeah, I don't need, uh, you know, I don't need to work on, you know, pot of coffee number three. So I figured we'd just have a little bit of tea. Let's have the inaugural sip. Mmm. Delightful. Okay. So let's talk about that. So in 1910 and prior, China was ruled by the Qing Dynasty, which I may be mispronouncing, but usual rules apply, doing my best on pronunciation. Uh, at any rate, 
they had ruled China for nearly 300 years. And prior to that, China itself had been ruled by an imperial dynasty uh, as their form of government for over 2,000 years. Now, just, just let that sink in for just a moment. They have been ruled by an emperor as their method of government since before the time of Christ. Jesus. Okay? That's quite a while. They have a lot of history of a strongman imperial leader at the top. A lot of history. By context, we have about 250 years of an attempt at representative democracy here in America. And if you go back to England, it's not been around much longer than that. Um, In fact, potentially, it's a whole point. The point is, democracy is a relatively new idea. These guys have a long, long tradition of not democracy governing them. Now, the imperial government, however, really started to show some cracks as um, contact with the West intensified in the 1800s. Now, historically, like a whole lot of monarchies that outlive their usefulness, the leaders of the time were allowed to uh, were were quite slow to embrace change, which left their country surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, realistically uncompetitive. And 1942, Imperial China lost the first opium war to the British Empire. And this was the conflict that got Hong Kong ceded to Britain in the first place. Now, fast forward just a, a mere 18 years, and you've got 1860, where they lost the second opium war to Britain, France, and weirdly, one battle they lost to the United States, who attempted to intervene in the opium wars, um, and then their ship got shelled by the Chinese, and the U.S. launched an amphibious assault against a series of four forts known as the Battle of the Barrier Forts, near the city of Canton, where they pretty much wiped the floor of the Chinese forces. You see, at the time, China had been very much its own insular sort of nation, and as they started opening up to the West, they discovered that they were technologically really behind the times in terms of military strategy, weapons, equipment, logistics, all the things, and they were just getting their ass kicked time after time by Western interests. And it doesn't help that... As Britain and France and the U.S. won these conflicts, we were pretty much just having our way with them from a corporate standpoint. If there was a resource we wanted, we'd just sort of go in and take it. And that's not just the U.S. That was pretty much everybody uh, that saw China as just sort of this big, massive treasure trove of natural resources that they could uh, just have their way with. I mean, my God, Britain fought two wars called the Opium Wars. Yes, yes. We needed our heroin back in the day. We needed it quite badly. Um, at any rate, in 1895, China then lost the first Sino-Japanese War, which lost them control of Korea and, ironically, Taiwan, which, as we know, will go on to be a, a whole big, hairy deal about a century later. At any rate, this was a series of three major wars that were three devastating losses to China, which put a lot of strain on the imperial government that was basically unable to prove that they were uh, really able to be competitive or fit to rule or do anything to keep the monarchy going. Uh, At the same time, most of the Western world powers were sort of raking China over the coals on trade and economic issues because, uh, well, Chinese were still trying to figure out how the modern world worked and because colonial powers were kind of a dick back then. This ultimately led to a strong fraction, uh, faction of people that felt that radical reforms were going to be necessary in order to keep China competitive and safe in a world where uh, everyone, including their neighbors in Japan, were rapidly advancing. 
there was a whole series of uprisings that um, ultimately led to the abdication of the imperial throne to a national assembly, and um, they made an attempt at a democratic government. Now, this might shock you, but that did not go well. Um, it, in fact, went quite poorly. There was almost immediately uprisings and infightings, and a number of military warlords started to divide up the country in places where the new federal government didn't have the resources to establish any kind of uh, direct legitimate control. And one of the political groups that started up during this time was the CCP, the Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, which started, like most communist parties, by a combination of downtrodden workers and college students and upper-class intellectuals who started dabbling in a little Marxism on the side. Now, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union sprung into action the moment they caught wind of there being a Communist Party in existence in China, and they started shuffling funding and instructors and advisors to help educate the new Communist Party of China on various ways to grow the party and influence change. You know, the Soviets really wanted to export that global workers' revolution as far as they could, and this was a great opportunity for them to do that. Now, one of those early members was Mao Zedong, who was the son of a wealthy farmer um, and he happened to be in Beijing in school when he started getting exposed to the ideas of Marxist and Leninism. Um, and during this time, he actually became a fundraiser for the newly forming Communist Party of China. He also organized his first student strike in 1919. Uh, he eventually founded a weekly magazine called the Xing River Review, which was written in the common tongue of China so that peasants would be able to read it. And it espoused some pretty radical ideas, like the need for a worldwide revolution and a violent overthrow of the government and the elite class. Needless to say, it was soon banned. Now, after organizing his second strike, <clears throat> um, and this time it was a workers' strike, uh, he was a part of a group who formed the original CCP in 1921 with Soviet aid. Now, at first, some of the ideas they preached weren't all that bad. They wanted better working condition for laborers. Yeah, that seems fair. Equal rights, rights for women. Yeah, yeah let's, let's, let's give women equal rights. That's great. More education opportunities for the poor. That's important. We like that. Higher literacy rates and also ending child labor. That's all stuff that everyone listening to this podcast could get behind. But don't worry. He'd get real radical real fast. So by 1922, the Communist Party of China uh, allied with the KMT, the Nationalist Chinese Party that was in the Republican National Legislature of the country, which had more or less taken power as best they could um, after the fall of the imperial government. Now, like I said, during this time, they are the official government, but there are dozens of warlords who have carved off chunks of the country and are kind of just doing whatever the hell it is they want. And the national, uh, the nationalist uh, government, the Republic of China, couldn't really wrangle them under their control. It just wasn't going well for them. So, uh, at any rate, the, the communists decided that the best plan here to try and get any kind of legitimacy or, or traction with the wider audience was to make an alliance with the KMT, the Nationalist Chinese Party, in the legislature. And the idea was that neither of these sides really philosophically agreed on anything other than a single united nation called China. And 
frankly, the nationalists could use all the help they could get, so they accepted help from the communists, and the communists wanted any legitimacy they could ride the coattails into. And so in exchange for getting some ability to sway things being voted on in the National Assembly, they threw their lot behind the KMT, the, the Nationalist Chinese Party. Okay, now... This is when we start to see some really heavy opinions start popping up, like, for instance, the first time Mao says the U.S. was an imperialist state controlled by the rich and were the, quote, most murderous of hangmen in the world. Now, a lot of this was influenced by Soviet ideology and the fact that at this time, especially with the stock market, it's the roaring 20s, the U.S. was kind of seen as just like this economic free-for-all where people were making oodles of money and partying, and it was a fun time and all that good stuff. And it sort of was the antithesis to what the Soviet Union was preaching about. Uh, the workers should share in all the wealth and all these kinds of things. And, and in a country like China, which was beset by a crumbling economy, a backward civilization, and pretty much everything not going their way, that really resonated with the working class. Now, by 1927, things started to get a bit dicey. The communist rhetoric was riling up the proletariat, and they started uh, going out and killing wealthy country landowners and seizing their possessions and establishing their own private communist communes. Holy shit, that escalated quickly. I mean, think about that. Hey, we want no more child labor and better working conditions, and um, you know what? Actually, just fuck it, you're dead, and we own your shit now. Wow. That is the speed of some progress right there. Now... The National Assembly and KMT were getting a bit worried about this uh, very militant communist thing happening. And a good reason for that is that unlike uh, or not unlike our Congress, a lot of the people in the National Congress were wealthy landowners and people that had money. And they saw this violence against the wealthier upper class to be something of a threat to them and the democratic republic they were trying to establish. I mean, after all... They had land. What's to stop the communists from deciding we should probably come kill them and take their shit, too? And this was a bit of a concern. Now, <clears throat> Mao Zedong effectively persuaded the leadership of the KMT that only he could settle down the peasants and only he could actually help there be peace between the communists and the nationalists. But the only way he could do that is if he had some leadership position within the party. So, Obviously, the answer, whenever some politician shows up and says, I'm the only one who can actually solve all your problems, pro tip, don't actually trust them. But, of course, they did. They gave him a leadership position in the Nationalist Party, and he announced to the country that the uh, methods of peace alone cannot suffice to bring about a workers' revolution, and it can only be done through a violent struggle against the upper class. This was not exactly the message the Nationalist Party was hoping to have Mao give the people. Uh, he was there to calm them all down, and instead what he said uh, is basically, you know, uh, fuck the man, let's bring this bitch down. So, a full-on civil war kicked off in 1927, which would last for 10 years until about 1937. And it was between various factions of nationalists and the Republic of China, a whole bunch of rogue warlords who were trying to do their own thing and make their own fiefdoms based on the imperial system, and, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. Now, throughout much of this conflict, the nationalists had the upper hand and generally better control over the country. Sure, 
Mao and his communists were popular with the rural folks, but generally speaking, they were pretty heavily outnumbered. They were pretty heavily outgunned. They didn't have access to um, what was, by Chinese standards, modern hardware or capabilities. And so it was really just this very guerrilla-style campaign against these warlords and the Nationalist Party. Um, and, and one of the things that's kind of ironic is that Mao supposedly uh, would go on to say that he kind of adopted his guerrilla-style combat rather than directly facing warlords or or the Nationalist Party directly in battle because, one, he knew he was outgunned and outnumbered, and, two, uh, these were tactics that had been used with success by, and you're going to get a kick out of this, George Washington battling numerically superior British, and by Napoleon during his conquest of Europe. That's right. Some of the folks that he referenced as inspirations for his revolution, at least from a military standpoint, were Napoleon and George Washington. Uh, The irony is rich. That being said, it still was not enough. Um, At the end of the day, the communists numbered in the thousands, whereas there were hundreds of thousands of people pledged to various warlords or the Republic of China government or any of these other things. And the Soviet Union wasn't really in a position where they were going to send tons of military equipment or anything like that. They were happy sending propaganda and giving them pep talks and even some training, but they weren't really going to get in there and do anything that was going to kick off a full-blown war with the country that had their largest land border. Fortunately enough for Mao, there was a trouble of ruin elsewhere in the world. Now, while Mao is working to kick off his communist revolution in China, there's another bad egg in Europe who was working on conquering the globe in the name of the Aryan race. And of course, it's that spooky old German, Adolf Hitler. Likewise, Japan, a longtime nemesis to China, as we've covered, well, they had recently, yeah, they were revealing themselves to the world as a first-rate military power. And they decided to throw their lot in with the Axis powers of Germany and Italy and do a little bit of conquest on their own. And I've covered in my Woodrow Wilson hit episode from earlier this year, how a lot of Japan's imperial conquests were perhaps spurred on by Woodrow Wilson referring to Japan as a backward nation of savages and all this sort of thing, and uh, how they should try and emulate the major world powers like the U.S. and Britain, and Japan kind of took that as a, yeah, you're right, we should build a really big military and go conquer some shit. Let's start with China. And they did. Okay, so... Seeing China in chaos, they decided that the absolute best thing they could do would be to invade Manchuria. Now, the Republic of China, what with the Civil War and all, wasn't really able to do much to defend itself and pretty much just wanted Japan uh, or watched Japan occupy this massive Ukraine-sized chunk of their country and could do fuck all about it. The Republic of China appealed to the League of Nations for help, and at this point, the League of Nations was purportedly in business to stop this sort of shit from happening, Um, but it didn't really work. The League of Nations' best answer was to give Japan a formal rebuke of this invasion and then kindly ask them to give it back. Needless to say, that didn't really work. Japan basically told them to shove it and uh, officially declared themselves no longer a member of the League of Nations and doubled down by sending colonists and more soldiers into Manchuria to hold it. 
Eventually, China was forced to sue for peace and signed a bitter series of concessions, giving Japan not only the land, but also agreeing to limit the size of their own military, and they were even forbidden from deploying troops within the northern parts of their own country so as they wouldn't be a threat to Japan. Pretty ballsy and pretty shitty. If you're China, you're getting kicked while you're down. The rest of the world just kind of shrugged and said, ah, what can be done? So, all of this helped the Communist Party of China to continue to fight the good fight against the ever-weakened Republic of China nationalist government. That being said, in 1937, Japan decided to stop fucking about and just roll up into the rest of China and take that too. Uh, this did have an unintended consequence, however. You see, the Republic of China and the Communist Party of China might have hated each other's guts and been fighting a 10-year-long civil war with each other, but both Mao and the leader of the ROC were not okay with Japan just taking over the country. Neither of them were all right with that. It would be like if Canada uh, invaded—well, actually, not Canada. Why would we even say that? Uh— Pick any big baddie, you know, that decides to roll up and invade America. Republicans and Democrats will put aside their differences and, and you know, be on the same side for that. And it was the same case here. Uh, CCP, ROC, didn't matter. They wanted to stop Japan from taking over. Um, so Mao and the ROC negotiate a truce where the CCP would actually fight alongside the Republic of China to expel Japan. So from 1937 to 1945, there was effective—and keep in mind, this is, I know, for most Americans, World War II started in 1941, but the reality of it is in the rest of the world actually started much earlier in Europe and in Asia. So this was the start of World War II for China in 1937. And keep in mind, during the course of that conflict, from 37 to 45. Over 1.3 million Chinese were killed during the Japanese invasion, and another 1.7 million were wounded. That's a lot of people. Now, the Chinese, uh, excuse me, the Japanese were not especially kind during the occupation, and I don't have time to go into all the gory details of the Japanese occupation, but feel free to Google the Rape of Nanking or the Japanese Occupation of China if you find yourself just a little too happy this afternoon and need a shot of depression in your day to level you back out. <clears throat> now, and I say all this not to trash my Japanese brethren and sisters. It's just a part of history. It's a thing that happened, say, la vie. Long story short, though, this is important to know because it means there is a lot of bad blood between Japan and China. Now, the Soviet Union did not want to see China, a perfectly good buffer state, uh, get overrun by Japan, and so they decided to provide military support, equipment, training, and whatnot to the Communist Party of China in a much more direct and useful fashion, whereas they wouldn't have sent them weapons before. Now they were sending in tanks, weapons, all the things, ammunition, whatever they needed, money, anything to support the Communist Party in this fight. Interestingly enough, the Soviet Union did not give supplies or aid to the Republic of China nationalist forces. They purely propped up uh, the Republic of China, or excuse me, the Communist Party of China forces because it's the Soviets and they're communists and that's who they're going to support. Obviously, they saw this as a great way to expand out the Soviet uh, 
workers' paradise revolution into China, and this was a good way to make that happen, and a very easily written-off legitimate way of them sending weapons and whatnot into this. So, where was the United States during all of this, you might be asking? Well, the United States took the ballsy approach of not taking any sides in the conflict whatsoever. In fact, they even increased their amount of international trade with the Empire of Japan under the premise that if we had deeper economic ties, it might prevent Japan from going to war with us in the future. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Now, it wasn't until 1940 when the war with Japan really, really, really seemed a lot more likely to the folks in Washington, that they decided perhaps we don't want to see China fall to Japan. Maybe that's not such a good thing. And so they sent war loans over and provided some money to China in order to help them continue their resistance. And they, of course, sent that support to the Republic of China Nationalist Forces. Why? Because the U.S. is capitalist and they didn't want to see the Communist Party getting too powerful. That being said... World War II might have brought together some unusual bedfellows. The U.S. was still leery of the spread of communism after the um, Japanese surrender. And the U.S., and this is actually quite funny, they ordered any Japanese troops in China to only surrender to Republic of China forces. Yeah, that's right. So, basically, they were told if you see... Communist Chinese forces and your Japanese just keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. World War II is still on for you. But if you see Republic of China forces, surrender to them, right? That's a bold, clever, that's clever, but that is a cold-blooded play right there. And you may be going, oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, how tactical was it? Well, let me tell you just how tactical it was. President Truman wrote this in his diary. Quote, it was perfectly clear to us that if we told the Japanese to lay down their arms immediately and march to the seaboard, the entire country would be taken over by communists. We, therefore, had to take the unusual step of having the enemy serve as a garrison until we could airlift Chinese national troops to South China and send Marines in to guard the seaboard. Hot damn, Truman, you were not playing ball with the Soviets, were you? All right, so yeah, there we go. Now, it was clear to the Communist Party what the U.S. was doing. They understood immediately when the when the Japanese were still fighting them but surrendering to the ROC, the U.S. or the uh, Russians, what was happening. They realized they were getting the shaft because they were communists. And yes, I get it, geopolitics, you have to play the big chess game, but that didn't exactly ingratiate the U.S. with Chairman Mao. All right, so now with World War II over, the Republic of China was already on a bit of shaky ground. The Soviets were funneling money and supplies into the Communist Party of China heavily, while the rest of China was experiencing hyperinflation. And that's not the kind of inflation you actually want. And a country that's already completely gutted from 10 years of Japanese invasion and then another 10 years of civil war before that, things were not looking good. Now... <clears throat> Mao briefly attempted to negotiate with the Republic of China, but it became very quickly apparent to everybody involved that the Republic of China was not going to willingly give communists a seat at the table. And it was also very clear to 
uh, everyone else that the communists were not going to back down from their plans of having a workers' paradise and a uh, massive overhaul of the class system. None of these things were compatible. None of these things were going to happen. Mao was going to continue his more radical ideas on governance, and that just wasn't compatible with what uh, with either side. And so, less than a year, only a handful of months after World War II ended, there was the second phase of the Chinese Civil War, which lasted from 1946 to 1949. The second round of the Chinese Civil War broke out, massive fighting. But by 1949, Maoist forces had overrun the country and forced the Republic of China to retreat to the island of Taiwan, where it remains today, giving us one of the most bizarre and complicated geopolitical hotspots on the globe. Now, you may be wondering, how is it that there was 10 years of civil war and neither side could really come out ahead, and in only three years in the second round, the communist managed to completely overrun the country? Well, the answer is relatively simple. One, the communist forces during World War II did not ever engage in direct combat. They were always doing guerrilla hit-and-run, all of that. Republic of China, on the other hand, the nationalist forces were always doing more headstrong campaigns. They were doing direct combat with the enemy, and they were taking lots of losses. Again, they had never really gotten their military up to snuff compared to the rest of the world, including Japan. So they were taking a lot more losses. Secondly, the U.S. didn't start backing the Republic of China until way later in the conflict. I mean, just, just they weren't involved. On the other hand, the communists were getting weapons, money, supplies, training, all the good stuff from the Soviet Union pretty much on day one. The second reason is, after the war, the Republic of China government had a hard time making economic decisions. They tried to do things, but at the end of the day, the economy was in absolute freefall. And when your economy's in freefall, having some guy like Mao Zedong and his Communist Party say things like, we can fix this, this needs to be a worker's paradise, this needs to be a utopia for those that labor in the fields, and the vast majority of your company, or company, country, labors in the fields, that's a seductive thought. That's going to get intention, especially when there's hyperinflation and everything's just going to shit. So he had a ton of support that did not exist during the first round of the Civil War. So, yeah, within three years, they had swept through the country, kicked out Republic of China. They set up shop in Taiwan. And bada boom, bada bang, here you are. Now, remember that former Chinese territory called Korea. Remember that? We talked about it a little earlier, how they lost to Japan about a half a century before. Well, during the end of World War II, it was surrendered by the Japanese as part of the um, you know dismantling of the Empire of Japan, and it was given in joint trust to the United States and the Soviet Union. And the idea was that they would divide the country along the 38th parallel. The Soviet Union would rebuild the northern half of the country. The United States would rebuild the southern half of the, the peninsula. And in a couple of years, they would be rebuilt, and they would release both of these countries into the wild as independent nations. And um, it would be sort of this proxy scenario of which political system works best. Did the uh, U.S. build the South better? Did the Soviets build the North better? Whatever. Well... Yeah, that's what we've got. And there were a lot of, and we're not going to go into the whole Korean War in any real depth here, but but yeah, that, that is where we're at. 
Um, the North became the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Several inherent lies in that name. Have fun with that. And the South, of course, became the Republic of Korea that we have today. Now, there are a few minor spats between these two, uh, but nothing significant. But pretty much 49, 50, uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. pulled out respectively, leaving these guys uh, theoretically rebuilt and prepared to go on and be successful independent nations. Uh, the problem is peace did not last long. In 1950, Kim Il-sung, the so-called great leader and the grandfather to our chubby little cherub Kim Jong-un, or as I like to call him, the precious little leader, well, he decided he was going to be the man that was going to reunify the entire Korean peninsula, and so he marched the North Korean army south in order to conquer South Korea, or the Republic of Korea. Well, the U.S. was not having any of that, so they deployed forces to prop up the Republic of Korea government and do a counteroffensive to wipe out the North and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. After all, the U.S. had the bomb, they had the best military in the world, all these things, nobody was going to get in their way. Yep, fuck it, we're going to make it work. Well, China realized that the fall of a neighboring communist country and the presence of a U.S. puppet state on their border was something they just could not abide. So they launched a massive, massive CCP army into North Korea, directly battling U.S. forces all the way back down to the 38th parallel. Now, they tried to push further south, but the U.S., having taken a couple of defeats early on, managed to rebolster their lines, get their defenses sorted out, and held the line at the 38th parallel, preventing the North Koreans or the Chinese forces from going any further. Eventually, by 1953, an armistice was signed, not an actual peace treaty, but an armistice ending more or less active combat, and putting us in the stalemate we're in today between North and South Korea. <clears throat> and thus is the Korean War. But this was educational for Chairman Mao. You see, he had realized that the U.S. tended to massively overreact to communist parties popping up anywhere in the world. I mean, the current Red Scare was happening in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. was going to go out of its way to topple any communist regime. And whereas the Soviet Union was certainly interested in trying to spread the workers' uh, revolution across the globe, and the Chinese communists were kind of sort of interested in that, what Mao was more interested in was creating communist revolutions in countries to distract the United States from messing with him while he was rebuilding and resorting and getting everything in, in China proper up to snuff. Which brings us to Vietnam. Oh yeah, that's right. Vietnam. Well, as I see it, we are 34 minutes in, and I think this is a good place to take a break, take a pause, let all that information sink in, and we're going to have part two of this episode next week. There we go. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, back back into a deep dive episode. Haven't had one of these in a little bit, so there we are. We'll have a, uh, like I said, part two next week, where we'll cover from Vietnam to current. Um, as always, if you enjoy the show, please go uh, leave a rating, a review, that kind of thing on, um, on iTunes. Uh, always feel free to email me or hit me up on LinkedIn if you have any thoughts, questions, opinions, bitches, gripes, complaints, whatever. And um, yeah, 
Otherwise, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that the revolution will not be televised unless it's in Tiananmen Square. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.